So I was amazed by this this machine of news and content and storytelling and the fast pace of the of, of the newsroom. Like right before deadline, phones are ringing, keyboards are banging, people are yelling. It's chaos, and I'm like, I'm not sure what the heck this is, but I'm in. It forced me to go out and get stories and talk to people, listen, take notes, comprehend what the storyline was, go back to the newsroom, compute that right, work on an A text machine and bank through copy. And I'll never forget my first night as a full time reporter. I covered three shootings in one evening, and I wrote this story about the the incident that was happening in the, in the city and those three incidents. And I submitted my story. The editor you know, drags me over to the desk and he says, "How'd you think you did?" I was like, "Oh, I think I did great, great story, good lead." And he was like, "It was dog crap." And I was like, "I was devastated." And he goes, "Here's why: the stories don't connect. Your transition graphs are horrible." And he literally just ripped me to shreds. And I was so PO'd about the experience, but then I realized he's only trying to help me become a better writer. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked about leadership and global experiences with Mozongo Mokwa. Today, we're going hyper-local. Our guest, Don Martelli, just campaigned to be elected to the City Council of Revere, one of Boston's suburbs. He was not successful in his campaign, but he still loved the experience. It will not come as a surprise to you that there's a lot more to Don than his campaigns for city council. He's the president of the Belfer Group, an integrated digital and marketing communication agency based in Boston. His story begins by accident, as he candidly admits, with an internship at the Boston Globe, back in the day when newspapers still ruled. From that experience, Don developed a passion for storytelling and fast-paced, high-pressure environments. As you will hear, that foundation of storytelling is a common thread to all the changes in his career, the platform upon which he built his leadership style. In our conversation, we discuss how you build teams leading by example, the importance of listening first, and the keys to success in client management. We also talked about the importance of failing in order to learn, and how you create a culture where people feel safe taking risks. And since Don is a true Boston sports fan, at the end of the episode, he shared a beautiful story about the Bruins. And in honor of Don, I will say, go bees! I normally start this conversation asking people how they got here. But before I do that, and this question is based on a conversation you and I had offline. If when you were in high school, they would have told you that you're going to end up being the president of a marketing agency, what would your reaction have been? I would have said... Do you sure you have the right Don Martelli? Because there's no way in hell that he would be a president and partner of a marketing and public relations firm in Boston doing the things that we do. Not a chance. At that time, I could barely figure out how to tie my shoes and understand what I wanted to do professionally. So if they told me that, I'd be like, no way, not a chance. All right. So let's go with the other part of the question, which is how do we get here? And, and you and I have had a <laughs> lot of interesting conversation with the shifts we go on in life. So as I tell everyone, you can take as little or as long as you want. My career is a boatload of accidental offense. I was a uh, business major at Northeastern, and I barely got into the college. I probably couldn't get into the college today if I tried to. I was a business major because, you know, that's what you did if you didn't have an idea what you wanted to do. And I you know, made it through the first full, full year of the, of the program, and I, re I recall very vividly the last semester I had a statistics course. And I started at the front of the class, very eager, taking notes, being very engaged, and then finding myself 
very disenfranchised with the content. I'm, I'm definitely not a numbers guy. Outside of one plus one equals two, I'll either use a calculator or I'll ask Alexa or anybody else for that. So I just found myself being kind of disengaged with the program overall. It just felt very dry, boring, non-creative. It just it wasn't doing it for me. And so finished that year. I come back, and my first semester of my sophomore year in Northeastern was supposed to be six months of a co-op. And typical Martelli fashion, I was late for everything. And my advisor said, well, you know, since you're late to the game, I literally only have two options for you. One is to drive a, uh, a beer truck around Greater Boston delivering beer to Packies. I was like, well, okay. Two, you can go write obituaries at the Boston Globe. I'm like, huh, okay, well, I can put pen to paper. I'm a decent writer. People always said that I can communicate and I'm pretty good at putting together uh, words in paragraph format and telling stories. So let me give this a shot. So my first day of my co-op, I switched careers and went, went into journalism and no, no background whatsoever. I found myself with the morning shift, 7 a.m. In the middle of, at that time, this is sort of like mid-90s, mid New England's biggest and most read newspaper. So here I am in this newsroom with, you know, Walter Robertson, Sasha Pfeiffer, Mike Resendez, you name it. It's the, the cast of you know, successful reporters and editors, most of them are, are which used to be part of the Spotlight team that there was a genesis of the movie that was out a few years back. So I'm, I'm working at the Globe in its heyday. And I will never forget my first day, Walter Robinson, who was my editor. Robbie has this very like deep, raspy voice, and he's also a Northeastern guy. And I'm looking at the newspaper, that, that morning newspaper, and there's four different versions of the same paper. And I'm like, why do we have four versions of the newspaper? And, you know, different stories, different lead paragraphs and different lead photos. And Robbie's like, you that Northeastern kid? I'm like, yeah, Mr. Robinson, Don Martelli, nice to meet you. He's like, why are you staring at the newspapers like you don't know what the heck they are? I'm like, well, I kind of don't understand why you have four different versions of the paper. And he goes, he grabs a paper and he just licks his fingers, turns the page, and he points at the stars on the front page. He goes, know what those are? I'm like, stars? He goes, no, those represent editions. When the paper gets printed at that particular time, the first edition, which came off the press around 10 o'clock, literally got driven up to Maine and down the Cape, and we brought the news to the people. This is before the internet and paywalls and all that kind of good stuff. Two stars was second edition, which means the papers were a little closer to Boston. One star meant third edition, which means it was the urban core. But then there was a fourth edition because we'd get the late sports scores from the West Coast when the Bruins, the Celtics, or the Red Sox were playing. So you'd have four editions. So I was amazed by this, this machine of news and content and storytelling and the fast pace of the, of, of the newsroom, like right before deadline, phones are ringing, keyboards are banging, people are yelling. It's, it's chaos. And I'm like, I'm not sure what the heck this is, but I'm in. I love this. It wasn't a nine to five. It wasn't doing the same thing every single day. It, it, it forced me to go out and get stories and talk to people, listen take notes, comprehend what the storyline was, go back to the newsroom, compute that, right? Work on an ATEX machine and bank through copy. And I'll never forget my first night as a full-time reporter, I covered three shootings in one evening. And, you know, this is before GPS. I'd have one of those big, you know, maps, you know, A3 to go to Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan. 
and I wrote this this story about the the incident that was happening in, in the city and those three incidents, and I submitted my story. The editor you know, drags me over to the to the desk and he says, "How'd you think you did?" I was like, "Oh, I think I did great. You know, I, you know, great story, good lead." And he was like, "It was dog crap." And I was like, "I was devastated." And he goes, "Here's why: the stories don't connect. Your transition graphs are horrible." And he literally just ripped me to shreds. And I was so po'd about the experience, but then I realized he's only trying to help me become a better writer. And so fast forward through that six months of writing for the Globe, I go back to Northeastern in my first journalism class, right? We're now, we, uh, we're assigned with writing our own obituary. And I wrote it in about three minutes because for the past six months, I've been writing hundreds and hundreds of stories. And I will, it, it, that experience at the Globe and understanding the pace of news, storytelling, how to put content together has been a catalyst for every single job I've had since then. And it's because of that on-the-job training. They threw me in the deep end of the pool with no training whatsoever. I just knew that at the core of what I could do was write and tell stories. I just needed to understand the mechanics of how that all worked around it. So after the Globe, I spent some time working in higher education. I did more media relations and public relations for Suffolk University and Malden Catholic High School. Then I realized you know, those jobs were very cyclical as well, just like the news business. I wanted to stay in the news but I didn't want a nine to five Monday through Friday. I wanted something that was still reminding me of the hectic pace of a newsroom, the camaraderie, the collaboration, the the deadlines, the, the, the focus of just driving storytelling. And I realized that my calling was more on the agency side. Because if you work for an agency, you have a cluster of clients, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 clients. They all demand a lot of things from you on a daily basis. No day is ever the same. I always joke, it's like being the fat guy at the buffet. I can have whatever I want any given day because I have options. It's funny, when before I came to this firm, I was doing, after my sort of a stint at a digital firm in Charlestown where you and I met, I was working for another firm, which was called D50 Media at the time. And that, that firm was actually the marketing arm of Sokolov Law. So Jim Sokolov, the one in called Jim, the you know, ambulance lawyer, if you will, he has this, this machine of marketing that has different channels, different teams running different channels, but all coordinated to drive traffic to their site to drive leads for their firm. And I realized that at one point, uh, there's, there's a firm that was trying to poach me out of there, and at that time it was called Schneider Associates. And when I looked at traditional firms in Boston, they were doing one thing really well. You had kind of creative firms doing really good creative. You had PR firms doing really good PR campaigns and early digital firms learning how to do digital in this new space. But there wasn't really any firms out there that were integrating all of these things because whether it's advertising, creative, branding, PR, it's still storytelling. It's still trying to get an audience to listen, engage, talk, discuss, is a way to take an action or, you know, kind of go follow through the CTA. So former owner of our firm um, kept calling me, kept calling me after a couple of conversations. And then, you know, lights dawns on Marblehead. Hey, she's probably trying to poach me out of this place. So, you know, this is fall of 2012. I arrived at Schneider Associates as the firm's first ever director of digital integration, which meant take our PR firm and figure out how the heck we can do digital. And at that particular point, I was more, you know, on the organic content side of, of digital, which was like, you know, social media channels, developing, you know, campaigns and getting people to talk and engage and, and so on and so forth. So fast forward to today, after about 12 years here at the firm, my business partner, Phil Pinellatore, bought it uh, from the former owner. We rebranded to Belfort Group. Uh, and the reason why we call the Belfort Group is because there's two answers in typical PR fashion. One, 
We are the bellwether of our client's business. And two, we fortify their bottom line. But the real answer is, my business partner grew up in Belfort Ave in Dorchester. So we're the Belfort Group. So you fast forward to today, you know, we had very dedicated teams working in very dedicated practice areas, healthcare, corporate, public affairs, and those teams only did that work. And I quickly realized I had some very talented people that worked in public affairs that could really write. And they were very creative and they were interested in learning how to run consumer digital campaigns for our consumer practice. So over time, I started to integrate the teams. So instead of being industry-focused and practice-focused, we became more service-line-focused. So right now, the Belfort Group, uh, we uh, bill ourselves as integrated digital marketing, creative services, web development, and communications. And we're focused on sort of four key um, service areas. One is digital, everything that goes into digital marketing. Creative services, which, you, as you can imagine, is everything creative. Our web dev team, which does everything, you know, web development, build out. And then our final practice is sort of what we call our strategies practice, which is more reputation management, public relations, crisis communication. So we're firm believers that we can take this service platform and literally apply it to any company and any organization, regardless of where they are in their inception. If they're a Fortune 500 company, if they are a startup, every organization has an audience that they want to communicate with more clearly and more in succinct. And in between the company and the, and the audience are these mouse traps that you and I have spent careers building. But at the core of all that, and I'm getting to a point here, is storytelling. How do you get people to pay attention in a world where we're a second swipe up or left or right moving on to our next thing? So how we got here was by accident that I fell into journalism. I fell in love with storytelling. And every job that I've had since then was a build on my last job. It was I caught the early wave of digital when Facebook was still in colleges and MySpace was still a thing. And then as social media became more of a mainstream play and being a technology geek, I gravitated towards the organic side of digital storytelling. And then every job since then had that new element of how do I disrupt what we're doing here at this firm or this organization and do it quicker, faster, more efficiently. And just kind of where we are here today at Belfort Group looking at you know, how do we now expand our service lines to bring on analytics uh, folks, mobile developers, folks that are more on user design, AI. So we're now sort of starting to push these new boundaries. I am interested in the personal journey, as usual, as a storyteller here, if you will. So many people realize at some point that they want to be creative and they become really good at, you know, what you described as the hustle and bustle of the newspaper, the creating stories, the creating stories for your clients, and the transition from a really good at a functional area, really good writer, really good creative person to actually somebody who's managing and building practices is not something that always happened. As you were sort of progressing in your career, what were some of the moments where you started getting more intentional and more realizing this is what I want to be and this is what I want to do? And what were some of the drivers or that? I feel that, as I said, when we started, that my entire career has been accidental offense. I never in a million years thought I would be leading you know, a multi-million dollar sales effort. I'd be leading 30 people, that they would look to me as the be-all, end-all decision maker on things. As a reporter, you're in the field with a notebook and a pen, and you're on your own collecting stories. And you have a team behind you that's copywriting and editing, but you're really a sole practitioner. Um, and I've always had those jobs where I've always done everything. I've talked to the clients, wrote the press releases, pitched the media, reported against that. It was really, really hard for me to understand and let go responsibility. I'm one of those like, you know what? 
I could probably take three quarters of the time off, get this thing done more efficiently and just bang it out and move on with my day. But then I realized and basically that the, the, one of the pivotal times I had really kind of two or well, actually three big mentors in my life. When I, when I was done with the globe and I went to work for Morrissey and company, which is no longer in existence, Peter Morrissey, rest his soul, was the owner of the firm. He was the guy that brought me on and others to help do some crisis communications work for the Archdiocese of Boston. And Peter was one of those very unassuming non-leader leaders, meaning when he was in the office, you didn't feel like he was the boss. You felt that he was just somebody who sat beside you in a cube and did the job that we did. Uh, he, he, he would pitch reporters. He would talk about client strategy. He would help review press releases. He wasn't this guy who just pumped out invoices and told us what to do. He was literally in the trenches with us, rolling up his sleeves, getting stuff done. And, and he, he always said to me that, you know, I always want to make sure that my team feel like I work for them versus they working for me. And I never understood that. I'm like, what the hell does he mean? He's the guy whose name's on the door. He's the, he writes the paychecks and we, we do what he asks us to do. But he operated in a way that was very unassuming, authentic, organic, and very collaborative. And he, he taught me you can still do good and help people out, but at the same time still lead. And so that five years I was with Morrissey and Company, I just learned, and this is when I'm in my early 20s, you know, coming into my, before I was married and kids, still kind of, you know, thick-headed and saying, ah, I'm going to go change the world. I just learned early on from him that that collaborative, unassuming approach inadvertently shows you how to lead. And that didn't really click for me, honestly, until I arrived at this firm. We had some some change, some turnover early on in like my first year or so at the firm. And then I realized when I looked around the room, there's really nobody else leading the groups that had kind of the experience I had with the years that I had under my belt, just to be able to have the tough conversations with clients and to be able to take on the tough assignments and really get into the work and, and, and drive success. So I became sort of like this, I wouldn't call it a you know, father hen, but the team just started to naturally look towards me for like advice and how to manage this problem or that problem, how to pitch this story. And I said to myself, geez, am I leading or is it just because of the experience? And my current business partner, Phil Pinellatori, he's the second mentor in my life who's really showed me how to lead, but also make sure that there is this feeling that you're an authoritative figure. You can still be collaborative, be friendly, be cordial. And it was really just, again, just like Peter, I just watched him. I just watched his actions and how he operated the business and how he interacted with people. And when people had tough days, he'd sit down at their desk and talk to them. I just, as a reporter, I'm, I, I'm paid to do two things. One, ask a lot of questions and observe. So watching Peter and watching Phil and then, you know, Ed Cafaso and about four other people in my life, just by watching them and like literally visually reporting on how they manage their day-to-day and their lives and how they manage tough conversations, I was like, I can do that. I think I can do that. And I just started to emulate those behaviors. And now I find myself passing this knowledge on to my sort of like the folks that report into me in the same manner where Phil always would tell me, don't come to me with problems, but come to me with problems and some solutions. And oftentimes those solutions may be absolutely dead on wrong, but the fact that you thought through it and tried to use your creativity to get to a solution was him telling me, you need the reps. You're gonna have some challenges in business and you need to continue to try to do this because at some point it's going to click for you. And I, and I, you and I had this conversation, that, you know, I think the last time we talked about when you were launching this podcast, I've learned that failing is okay. It's okay to fail. And for, matter of fact, I kind of thrive in it. I, I just ran for office here in, in Revere uh, as first time I ever ran for office in my life. 
and I was 800 votes short. And I was absolutely 100% crushed that people didn't love me enough to elect me in. But then I realized, you know what? Maybe I could have worked harder. Maybe I could have knocked on more doors. I could have learned more. So the election from Phil to Ed to Peter, I've had people in the around my world, either you know, overtly or inadvertently, that just showed me what's a you can be a good person, be collaborative, do good in this world, but still lead and lead people to do the same thing. I love the fact that you told about the importance of failure. You go and tell your team, it's okay for you to fail. It doesn't always sink in. How do you create a culture that allows your people to actually take those risks and feel safe in them? I think culture is something that is created, not something you create. It's the proverbial village, right? But again, the theme here is by example. I mean, I openly talk about the things that I've tried to do and failed miserably. And even in real time, I will make suggestions to clients that they're like, you know, that's a great idea, Don, but dot, 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 meaning they're saying, we're never going to do that. And that idea is absolutely horrible. But because we have a good relationship and we like you, we're going to keep you around. So how do I create that culture? It's just by example. I'm always trying to push the envelope, trying to push the team and, and suggest and create and and do things myself. Like we're we just launched a, uh, we're in the process of launching a new client and the client to go unnamed is is getting pretty excited and interested in getting things done sooner rather than they should be done. Meaning we're just not ready to launch the campaign just yet. And I've had to make a couple tough suggestions and I knew the client was going to come back to me and say, well, you know, we're paying you a boatload of money, just get it done. And I've had to like fight it a little bit. Eventually we, we figured out how to, to truncate our process, and move things forward. But uh, the suggestions I made just didn't have, didn't land with the client in the way I thought they were going to. And, and basically, I, I, I took a couple lumps. But, and I particularly brought up the conversation in this particular, the couple things we're debating on the call in front of the client with my staff. So the staff could see like my ass get kicked purposely because I knew what the client was going to say. I knew what the messaging was going to be. I knew what I needed to say to retort and to say, you know what? Uh, we bridge in our business all the time. You know, it's a great question, Dino, but I'd rather speak about X, Y, and Z. In this particular case, I, I made sure that the item was on the agenda. I brought it up. I reiterated my point of view, and I knew the client was going to come back and just hammer me, and I allowed that to happen. I will never forget. I, I messaged my team on, on Teams and said, watch this, dot, dot, dot. I asked the question, and then in real time, I'm messaging the team saying, he's going to say A, B, C, and D, and this is how I will retort. And it's going to be kind of an uncomfortable situation, but I'm doing this so you all will learn how to have tough conversations with clients. Because whether it's your client, your neighbor, somebody you meet, your loved one, you will eventually have to have tough conversations. But if you can figure out how to remove the smoke and the, the fire and focus on the, a goal, and sometimes that goal might not be your goal. It might be somebody else's goal. But if you understand how to get there, maybe it just it, it, it's a learning lesson, but also it gives you a chance to replicate that down the line and maybe more effectively. So the way I, I create or foster that culture is just by doing it and showing people that I can be vulnerable in those spaces. There's a really important second lesson in this specific example, which is that especially when you're in organizations that have a lot of pressure in the service world and you're told that the client always comes first, a lot of people think that the client always comes first means do whatever the client says. And that is not it 
absolutely. It means have the integrity of figuring out what you think is right for the client, fight for it. If the client disagrees, you have two options, right? One option is you take your lumps and you tell the client we're not the right fit for you, which is really hard to do. And the second option is if you end up going with the suggestion for the client that the client wants to do, did you disagree? At that stage, you own it 100%. The ability to teach people how to stand up to the clients in a polite and respectful but firm way and in a way that actually explains why. Because I think with the majority of clients, as long as your counter-argument is grounded in solid logic and data, nobody's ever going to hold it up against you. They may disagree and get mad at you. I agree. I always tell my team, don't feel bad or upset that we don't know everything. Right? We, we will never know a client's business as intimately as they do. They are living this they wake up in the morning and this is what they're on the docket every single day. We have a number of clients doing a number of things in, in different areas. So it's hard for us to always be on with every single client. So we kind of get paid to be inquisitive, right? We get paid to ask the questions and challenge. And instead of becoming an agency and, and using that vernacular and that terminology, we've become, and I think I have become over the years, just through the mentorship and the, the people I've had around me, more of a, of a, a business consultant, right? The client says to me, hey, you know what? We just need to be out there more. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm that annoying eight-year-old in the backseat of the car. I was like, what does that mean? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And I just keep asking the questions. And you find out, you know what? We're not out there because our competitor down the street is selling the same product we're selling for half the cost. And they, they, they're not using traditional advertising methods because their audiences are 18 to 24-year-olds that are on TikTok. And so they're using TikTok advertising. So, like, it, again, it goes back to, and I'm trying to drive this home with, with our team, is that you might not have been in the, the Boston Globe with a pen and paper and become a journalist, but we are all basically information truth seekers, right? We drill into problems like miners. We drill in and we drill in and drill in. Because like I said before, every company organization has an audience or audiences that they want to communicate to. And the way that happens will be dictated on you know geographical locations, social de demographics, channel allocation, their age, right? The way you communicate to an 80-year-old is different than an eight-year-old. But at the core of what we do is, again, is mining information and, and helping disseminate that information to those audiences. So, you know, I, I try to just show my team that it's okay to be inquisitive and ask the questions. There, Literally, there are no dumb questions. Every question is a good one because it's going to be building on something else. And we want the clients to see that we are thirsty for knowledge, that we're hungry to get information, that we want to challenge the norms, we want to fail, because that's just the speed of marketing is is no longer, you know, deadline focused at five o'clock and the newspaper comes out the next day. It's 24 7, 365. It's always on. That's true. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You know, you casually in passing mentioned that you ran for office. You know, somebody with the busy life that you have, what was the drive? to go and say, I'm going to layer something on and something as ungraceful, quite honestly, as serving into local government. I never thought in a million years, I thought that I would run or become a politician. So the, the story is uh, here in the city, I live in Revere, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston, kind of an urban community, a uh, very diverse community. And the, the, the local political scene is kind of old Revere, if you will. But over time, things have changed. There's been more progressive thinkers. And the city has really flourished. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the Commonwealth. 
And more, more recently, I'd say about a year or so ago, the current mayor left to take a job at the state, which opened up a sea of interest from existing city councilors to take that corner office. And because of that, the open seats cascade down to the city council level. And for a month and change, the folks that I am connected to in the city, I've lived in the city for 25 years, I've coached, I have run cleanup days, uh, my wife and I have run the PTO, the Field Hockey Parents Club. We've done everything in this city you can possibly imagine as an active family. We host a lemonade stand every year where we raise money for childhood cancer research and we've raised almost $65,000 in 12 years. The kids started when they were eight and seven, now they're almost 20 and 17. That event has really connected us like to every corner of this city. So I've done a lot and I, you know, my, I'm, I'm kind of in the bubble and I'm around the scene. The one thing that, you know, people have always said to me is that you'd be great as a public leader, as a member of the city council. And they feel that way. And this is the feedback I'm getting is because we want, we want to feel, we, the voters and residents want to feel more connected to the services to which we pay for, right? I want to make a call to get the curb cut. I want to make a call to get the, the pothole fixed, or I have traffic issues. They don't feel connected. They have been, for years, I've been saying, you'd be good at this job. You're a good communicator. You're very connected to the community. You have a bunch of relationships you can tap into and really be like kind of like a switchboard operator for your residents. And I just, I fought it and I fought it and I fought it. And then my kids started to talk about it. Then my wife started to talk about it. Then it became real. Like, oh, I may be able to actually pull this off. And with their blessing and, and their believing, I started to think to myself, okay, can I, can I spend the time? Can I do the weekly meeting? Can I answer the phone calls and emails? And I realized I've got 35 plus active clients and 30 plus employees who are always asking me for stuff. So volumes of emails and text messages and calls, it's not going to change. It's just going just to continue what I'm already experiencing. But the kicker to this entire thing was day two of my daughter's internship at City Hall. So she was working in the mayor's office and I went, I walked her in to say, to say hello to the mayor and some friends in there. And she literally walked by the office and, and stopped in front of the election door and said, dad, it's time for you to pull papers. Meaning I should pull my nomination papers on the spot and run for office. And that's what I did. And so I said to myself, what kind of example would I be setting for my kids if I at least don't give this a shot? What are two or three surprising things you learned about yourself going through the campaign? And, and then you mentioned you came in 100 sh votes short. What I learned about myself, that the networking and the, the, the sales growth work that I do at Belfort Group, I mean, connecting with people, asking questions, understanding pain points, is, was analogous to this work. So I, I've, I've walked just about every inch of the city, knocked on thousands of doors, talked to hundreds of people, those that have lived here for six generations to those that just moved in six months ago. That ability to be able to talk to anybody at any given time, regardless of the, the situation, the setting. And the second thing I learned was that my knowledge of the city and how it works and how to give people or show them how to access particular services they need is just knowledge I've been able to gain over 25 years. And that anytime any questions I've, I've got at the door, whether it be about development, traffic, taxes, I've, I'm well read on this stuff just because I pay attention and I'm just curious about it. So I was able to fluidly go in. And if I had a street of 50 homes and I knocked on every single door and I got 10 people, the, those conversations are like, absolutely 10 different conversations, right? You got Mary Smith, who's lived there for 30 years, raised both of her kids, got three cats, 
you know, watch Jeopardy and reads the newspaper still. And he's, she's worried about senior taxes. The family next door has got four kids under the age of eight. They're worried about the school system, safety in the school. They're worried about public safety and crosswalks around the school system. The next guy over is, is single, no kids, right? Wants to see more development, more restaurants. Everybody has all these issues. And I've learned that to fluidly go in between conversations and change on a dime right? is just something that I just got used to because of the hectic pace of a newsroom. I'd cover one story, go back to the globe, write it, bang it out, be sent out to cover something else. Fast forward, I work in, in an agency where you know, every single day I'm talking to 10 to 15 to 20 different clients about different topics, nanoparticles, MBA programs, real estate development, you name it. And being able to fluidly go in between conversations and start and stop, start and stop was something that I didn't know that I had that skill set until I'd be in a networking event here in the city and talking about my background and how I felt that a former journalist now partner in a marketing communications agency and the work that I do is analogous to being a, a leader in this community. I never thought those two things matched until I started to go through the narrative. And so the ability of multitasking, storytelling, communicating effectively. And the, uh, the last one, and this is kind of a micro of the macro, is getting solutions quick. And so my neighbor, uh, guy's in his probably mid-80s, uh, has complained about the tree line up on his street. It's a, it's a pretty big steep hill that goes up Park Ave. And when he pulls out of his driveway, he literally cannot see up the street because the trees are so thick. He's been asking for the trees to be cut, and he also wanted one of those domed mirrors on the telephone pole across the street so we can see, have some purview up the street. So I, over the election process, I got to know the, the gentleman who runs the DPW and I've, clearly the mayor who's now in office is a good friend of mine. I placed two phone calls. A week and a half later, the trees were cut and the mirror was installed. And you would imagine that I, I gave this guy a million dollars. He was so thankful, gave me a couple really expensive cigars. It was like, gave me a big hug. And I was like, dude, all I did was make a couple phone calls and pleaded with the people that can get the job done to get it done. So I learned that, you know, uh, time management was a thing that I learned pretty successfully throughout my years, asking questions, getting answers, and creating a feedback loop is what people really wanted in this city. They wanted to say, I have this problem. Can somebody get me an answer to this question? And I had the ability to say, it might not be today, might not be tomorrow, it might be in a month, but I will be back in front of you in some way, shape, or form. Here's how to get a hold of me. So the, the scrum of being a journalist, dealing with clients, dealing with staff, all of that stuff absolutely prepared me for this journey as a, as a potential candidate. And I had no clue that that stuff was analogous until I, I was actually walking the streets talking to people. That's a great place to stop the professional portion of the conversation. If people want to find you or follow you, what's the best place for them to go? Literally, if you just, if you just Google Don Martelli, I do a pretty good job of having my stuff out there. But I, I can be found on all platforms. Uh, TheBelfortGroup.com is our website. I also have Don Martelli for Revere, which is my political website. I also have DonMartelli.com. And matter of fact, one of the early handles I've ever had in social media was Big Guy D, B-I-G-G-U-I-D. And that's coming from a, my wife, frankly, because she'd be like, hey, big guy, take out the trash. Hey, big guy, ever thought about doing this? So when in the early 2000s, when we were thinking about cool names for social media handles, I came up with Big Guy D. So just search Big Guy D and then you'll find me. It's funny, like, I think of you as Big Guy D. Yeah, people, my kids call me Big Guy D. How's it going, Big Guy D? I'm like, it's fine. It's great. <laughs> that's fabulous. First question, what's a hobby of passion outside of work? 
two things. During the pandemic, my wife was looking to make a specific meal and we did not have any flour. So at that time, this is when you bought everything online and it got delivered to the house and to wipe it down, all that kind of good stuff. I could only find a 50 pound bag of flour. And I said to myself, I'm going to buy it. Who gives a shit? I'm going to buy the flour. It's going to show up to the house. So we get the flour. My wife makes the meal. And all of a sudden, I'm staring at about 49.9 pounds of flour. What the hell am I going to do with this? So, and the stories connect. So after a couple IPAs, I'm sitting on the couch. And I'm like, yeah, I'm scrolling through YouTube. And I just happen to land on this guy who's like this non-baker baker. And he started to walk through how to make New York-style bagels. And I'm like, after, you know, one IPA, two IPAs, four IPAs, I'm like, I can do this. I could become a baker. So like the first like four or five batches of bagels I made were like bricks. Absolutely horrible. Fast forward to today, people ask me all the time for my Asiago everything bagels, which they make into like little brisket, uh, cream cheese, red onion, tomato. I also bake a very, very delicious cast iron cookie skillet blueberry muffins. So I've, I get this dream of, you know, Big Don's bagels, you know, Big Guy D's bagels. Uh, so I've turned, in, because of the pandemic and 50 pounds of flour, I've turned into a bit of a baker. And my second thing is I'm on the board of directors at a local brewery called Beer Moose Brewing. And so I've learned a lot about the brewing process and distribution. So it, like, and I'm, I'm a big connoisseur when it comes to IPAs and all the types of beer. So I'm, I'm helping that brewery expand their footprint in the local Everett Revere area. So between baking, so my real big idea is Big Don's or Big Guy D's beers and bagels. That's fabulous. This is my favorite question of the podcast. You've heard it before. It is we end up in every era with business expressions or cliches or jargon that is so overused that it loses every meaning. What's the one that drives you crazy? We could use another three hours to go through the ones that I do not like. Because as you know, our business is riddled with, uh, I'll loop back with you. I'll circle back. Let's put that in the parking lot. The parking lot absolutely drives me nuts. It, I'd rather say that's a good idea, but we can't get to that right now. Let's get back to it later. The parking, like we're going to put that in the parking lot. That drives me absolutely nuts because, you know, I, I feel like every idea has a place. It might not be now, but it should have an, an ability to grow and be fostered and watered and driven to maybe something that could be better. So stuff that's in the parking lot. And when people say that, they're either saying it because they thought that they should have had that idea first, or they literally don't think it's a good idea and they don't want to tell you that the idea sucks, but put that in the parking lot. Absolutely drives me bonkers, bonkers, because I don't, there's no bad ideas. Plus, if the parking lot is all cement, nothing grows on cement. No kidding. No kidding. And boss, we see the parking lot. So it's just like, it just drives me nuts. Final question, food for the body or food for the soul. I kind of feel we covered the body, you know, recipe with your bagels and beer. So do you have a piece of art, song, book, article, movie, theater, something that right now nourishes your soul that you want to share with our listeners? So uh, when I was 16 years old, I worked my butt off to buy my father a uh, Boston Bruins clock. And that Boston Bruins clock has a, a rookie card of Bobby Orr. And so... Uh, when I was 16, after I bought the clock, my brother and I gave it to my, my dad for Christmas. And he opened it up, and he was a stack. My, my father was a massive, massive Bruins fan. We said, oh, man, where are you going to hang up the, the clock, Dad? He's like, I'm not going to hang it up until they win the Stanley Cup. And that was when I was 16. I'll be 50 in December. So time has, time has passed. So one year goes by, two years goes by, three, four, five. 21 years later, in 2011, when the Bruins were in the Stanley Cup Finals, 
my brother and my myself and my father, we'd all watch the game in separate places because we were very superstitious about what we did and what we wore, what we ate, because clearly our personal habits would impact the game, not, but that's what we believed. So for game seven, I said, dude, we've been waiting 21 years for this stupid clock to be put a battery in it. So we have to watch this game together. So the three of us watched the game together. Bruins won the Stanley Cup. It was the most emotional experience I've ever had with my brother and my father in my life to this day. And that was the uh, in June of 2011. My father passed away unexpectedly in February of 2012. Now, as currently as a, as a Boston Bruins season ticket holder, and it's, it's, it's hanging right here above my head, that clock means more than just a piece of wood in time. And so Bruins, the clock... It's an, I'm already getting emotional about it as we speak about it just because I miss the old man. But that experience with my father and my brother and just every game that I go to at the Boston Garden, I always think about him for at least you know five to ten minutes when the, when the anthem is being played. And so I know it's just professional sports and it doesn't really impact our lives, but the, the spoke B has a bigger impact on my life than many. That's fabulous. Don, great having you. Thank you for coming and all your insights. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews or ratings like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please follow us on all the social platforms that you're present on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's called John Brown and it's from her record Haunted Heart.
gold. 